Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, you're going to learn about how much you can save in fees and taxes on your investments, depending on how much time you want to spend optimizing your investment portfolio. Now, in Canada, there are inexpensive options that make things extremely easy and automated for you, but they are slightly more expensive and slightly less tax efficient. On the other end of the spectrum, there are other investments available to Canadians that are as optimized as you can get in terms of keeping your fees low and saving you money on taxes, both on the Canadian side and on the foreign withholding tax side. The trade-off, though, is that these optimizations take a fair bit more work on your end to learn about and to actually implement. So how big are these optimization benefits to you specifically? How much are you really saving by going with a fully optimized approach versus a semi-optimized approach? Considering that the more optimized you want to get, the more time it's going to take on your part in terms of educating yourself and actually implementing these tax and fee-saving activities. Also, how big should your investment portfolio be before you start optimizing? Or should you start optimizing right away? We also cover where to go to check what fees you're currently paying on your investments so that you can have a nice apples-to-apples comparison when you are debating what fund or ETF to buy or to check whether you are currently overpaying on your investments. We cover all this and more in this episode. Now, this week's episode is a little different since I optimize my investments to this highest level in terms of paying the lowest fees and lowest taxes, and my guest also does the same. And so in this episode, instead of the guest doing 90% of the talking, we instead each talk about how we both tackle these questions. And I figure this way, you are getting two educated perspectives from two different people in Canada who have already been doing this for years. And I think ultimately that will help you make an educated decision on what level of optimization you want to pursue in your own portfolio. So our guest today is Brendan Wood. I actually used the tool that he built years ago to semi-automate my investment portfolio and see all my accounts in one place. Now, these optimizations that we're talking about today can be complicated and time-consuming to do. And so these days, I actually rely on his tool to do the calculations for me as that eliminates the human error component on my end. And at this point, it's literally saved me dozens of hours because I no longer have to do all the calculations and trades myself manually when optimizing my portfolio. So the tool that he built, it's called Passive. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know that I've been using Passive way before they ever started sponsoring the podcast. In fact, I actually reached out to them because I was recommending them to everyone anyway. And so I figured they would be a good fit for listeners if they became a sponsor of the show since I'm promoting them all the time anyway. So I switched over to Passive because I hated having to log in and out of different accounts just to see how all my investments are doing as a whole for my wife and I. And rebalancing the portfolio through a spreadsheet is tedious as it requires manual data entry every time that you have money to invest. And there's that human error component because it's easy to make a typo. And the tool helps me do these tax and fee-saving optimizations by semi-automating it instead of it being this tedious, time-consuming process where I have to do manual data entry every time. 
So our guest today is Brendan Wood. He is the CEO of Passive. And if you want to try the tool that he and I use, you can get a free account over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. It's just buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And if you're a Quest Trade user, you can get the premium account for free as well. And the instructions to do that are over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash passive. That's buildwealthcanada.ca dot ca slash passive and that's literally the plan that i'm on where i basically use the premium account for free because i'm a quest trade user all right so let's get into the show all right brendan welcome back to the show hey cornell thanks for having me back awesome so to kick things off brendan everybody wants to pay the lowest taxes and fees on their investments but what is the actual size of this benefit if somebody is putting in the work to have their DIY investment portfolio fully optimized. And let's break this down to into sort of two main components because there's the fees side, so like the MER, and then there's the tax minimization side, which has to do with asset location. So why don't we tackle those two? Yeah, sure thing. So the amount of benefit that you get by optimizing your portfolio is proportional to the size of your portfolio. The way most wealth managers and MERs and tax efficiencies work is that it's based on basis points, a percentage of your portfolio. So if you don't have that much money to invest, you don't stand to gain a lot in terms of actual dollars saved from implementing these optimizations. But as your portfolio grows and as you get closer and closer to retirement, the amount of money that is essentially coming out of your investment portfolio to pay for that is going to increase. And so that's when it makes sense to optimize your portfolio. The further along you get, the more money you're going to save by doing it. Yeah. And the differences here I find can be really substantial, especially in Canada. Long-term listeners of the show know that Canada has some of the highest mutual fund fees in the world. And so I did some little bit of research before our call here just to look at how things compare. So if you look at something like one ETF that I buy for my RESP, for example, is a ZEQT. It's an all-equity asset allocation ETF. And that charges basically 0.2%, so 20 basis points to have that. Whereas if you look at some of these mutual funds out there, they could be they could just be doing closet indexing they're doing something similar but they're charging let's say two over two percent two and a half percent even so i mean there are instances where you're literally paying 10 times more for having this high fee mutual fund versus you could just buy something like a zeqt or, or a comparable etf and, and pay that much less in fees when i did this math myself to find out how much these could be it literally was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars assuming you're actually investing and you're growing your portfolio over time. Have you found the same thing in your own experience and research that this is one of the biggest things you can do in terms of moving the needle in terms of your net worth and getting to retirement quicker? Absolutely. That was one of the reasons that I started Passive is that I did the math on my own portfolio and realized, wow, I'm going to be paying an awful lot of money over the course of my life to leave my investments in a mutual fund rather than doing it myself. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that to me before in an earlier interview. And I think we even said how, I told you how myself, when I did it, I heard this 100,000 six-figure sum in savings being mentioned many times. And I thought that seems way too high. They must be exaggerating. And then I actually did the math myself. And I think you did as well, right? And realized, oh my goodness, they're not exaggerating. It actually is hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's over your investment lifetime, so it's over a long period. But still, six figures, inflation or not, it's still a six-figure sum, right? That's right, yeah. I think... Uh, so I was thinking about mine in percentage terms, and I think it worked out to something like 30% of my portfolio value over the course of my life would go to fees if I had left it in a mutual fund rather than investing yeah. in a self-directed account. And so 30% is a lot. You think about what that does for your portfolio. Like that is 
a substantial difference in, in your quality of life when you're actually drawing down. For sure, especially now. I, like when you and I started investing, there was a lot less options. There were still some low cost options, at least when I started. Like I remember TDE series was a really popular one, for example. But now it's so it's even easier, right, with these asset allocation ETFs that exist, where it's not like you're buying an inferior product. It's it's a great like I'm a huge fan of them. I buy them. The comparable one is ten times more the price. I'm okay. I'd rather just buy the asset allocation ETF if I don't want to deal with rebalancing or anything like that. So no, I, I hear you. So the second we talked about fees now. So that's one kind of the lowest hanging, high impact fruit that I could think of in terms of how investors, Canadian investors, can save money, grow their net worth quicker. The second component we talked about when it comes to all of this is asset location and that whole subject. And that has to do more so with saving on taxes, right? Because there's the fee side, which is like the MER that we talked about, and then there's the taxes. So for anybody maybe new to all of this, and just to make sure we all have our are using the same definitions, can you talk about what actually is asset location? What does that actually refer to? Sure. So there's sort of two sides to the asset location. So one is like the type of account that you're holding your investments in and whether or not it makes sense from a taxable perspective to hold it in a particular account. For Canadians, we have a lot of tax, different types of tax shelter accounts that are available. We have tax-free savings accounts. Those are post-tax accounts where you earn your money through your job or whatever, and you invest in that account. So you pay tax on the money that you invest. But then once it's in that account, it's sheltered. So whatever gains you get are sheltered from tax going forward. And there's the RRSP, which is the opposite, where you essentially put money into your RRSP prior to paying income tax, and that grows without being taxed until you withdraw it. And then when you withdraw, it gets treated like income. And then there's a few other ones like the RESP for education savings. And there is a new one, which is the first home savings account. And so they all have different tax advantages. And it really depends on how what you're using them for and how you plan on drawing down those investments in the future, which one makes sense. And of course, those accounts all have caps. And if you're really hitting your contribution goals, you're probably going to max them out at some point, which means that you then have to start looking at margin options and or cash-based options. And so those are ones where you invest the money and you're just going to pay capital gains on whatever you earn straight up. So those accounts are typically the the least optimal. You, you want to max out your tax shelter accounts as much as you can first, but eventually you're probably going to have to do just a straight up taxable account. So that's one side of it, is what account type that you invest in. The second, the second thing to think about with asset location is where those assets are actually domiciled. So Canada is a fairly small market on the global scale as far as, as far as investments goes. If you're investing, you're probably investing a substantial portion of your assets outside of Canada to try to hedge the risk. And if you put your assets in the United States, if you have US domiciled investments, then the United States wants a piece of whatever taxable gains that you get from your assets. It's not a huge piece. They do take a few basis points and you're essentially, you can think of that. It's not really an MER, but like it is a cost to holding those investments. So essentially what you want to do is think about how, what, what sort of things you can do to optimize those taxes. So we do have tax treaties between Canada and the United States and the tax treaties allow for investments in RRSPs to not be subject to that withholding tax. And so this is where things get a little bit technical, but the location where you store these assets and the type of assets that you hold them in and the type of account that you hold them in has an impact on what sort of taxes you pay in exchange for those. Sounds good. And we're definitely going to be covering different options because already we're getting into this higher level of complexity. And I did want to make it clear that 
you don't always have to have things optimized to the furthest extent possible and spend many hours researching and fine-tuning. That's not something that you have to do in order to be a successful investor, in order to retire early, especially, I would argue, with the invention of asset allocation ETFs, for example, it's, it's easier than ever to be able to do that. So there are different levels of complexity that you can sign up for. <laughs> and it's not like if you choose the simpler one, you are doomed and you're never going to retire. It's just, especially as your portfolio gets bigger, it's just something to consider because the savings end up getting bigger and bigger. So I did want to make that clear because we are, I do want to provide value to both people that are just getting started, but also those who are maybe 10 years from retirement, they have large portfolios and and these little tweaks can actually make a big difference just because their portfolio is so large. But I don't want to have this narrative or mistakenly communicate that you have to do it in this super optimum complex way because that's not the correct answer 100% of the time. Yeah, did you have anything to add to that? I just wanted to make that point really clear that this is going to be, we'll have options for sort of the people that want to keep things simpler and those that want to are just like finance junkies and want to like myself and just want to optimize things to the extreme. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a really good point. You can go down a very deep rabbit hole trying to optimize your portfolio and squeeze out every last basis point that you might possibly save. You could shave the basis point if you want. But the question, is it worth doing? And that's something that you need to determine for yourself, but it's related to how much money are you investing? So how many dollars you actually want to save at the end of the day? Is the juice worth the squeeze? And how much you value your own time and how much you enjoy tweaking and tinkering with your portfolio. Because if you don't want to do that at all, then you probably shouldn't go anywhere near the tax optimization stuff. It's not a cost that you pay just as a result of doing self-directed investing. It's baked into any type of investment that you get anywhere. There's just tricks you can use to try to minimize those. And is it worth doing? Do you enjoy doing it? That's up to you. Now, you mentioned the, how much juice do you want to squeeze out of the lemon or whatever fruit we choose. <laughs> but when it comes to that, would you say that when we're talking about MER and fees and going with this high fee mutual fund versus just, let's say, being a DIY investor, getting a buying individual ETFs or NAS allocation ETF, and we, we talked about the savings, like potentially 10 times higher cost. Would you say that is a lemon that is almost always worth the squeeze just because the, or maybe even always to say always worth the squeeze just because the savings are so substantial and it moves the needle to such a great extent? I feel like it's almost always worth the squeeze. There's always going to be cases where you just want something super simple and you don't want to think about your investments at all. And that's the kind of thing where a mutual fund with your bank works really well because they can take your money and they will invest it for you and you don't have to think about it at all. So that's that's essentially the service they're selling in exchange for the high MER. But it is a high MER and it is roughly 10 times the cost of holding the assets directly in an ETF. So you decide what it's worth. Mm -hmm. Particularly when you're just getting started though, that's I think where it almost doesn't matter what you choose. So if you've just started down your investing journey, you're only a few months in and you're still trying to stay, keep up with your regular contributions and build the muscle for doing it, your account value is probably not very high. It's probably just a few thousand dollars. And if that's the case, how much are you paying in fees on $5,000 if you have it in a 2% mutual fund? It's not a lot of money. It's what the math work out to that. If it's 2% 2% at $1,000 is 20 bucks. So at five, it would be about $100 a year. That's not a crazy amount of money. But if you lock yourself into that and eventually your portfolio is hundreds of thousands, then it's a lot of money. So I think you have to think about it progressively where it almost doesn't matter what you do at first, as long as you're contributing and you're 
moving along the right path and making the right decision to set yourself up, but eventually it becomes worth more and more worthwhile to your MER massively. And then the other optimizations you can do, you can decide whether you want to do them when it makes sense. And when we're talking about asset location, so that other component, now it's a different subject. Now it's about tax minimization. What that, that I would say is a, it sounds like what you're saying as well, is that's a lemon that is sometimes with the squeeze for some people, but not necessarily for others, because it's no longer this sort of low hanging fruit, as is the other example when it comes to MER. Would that be fair to say? That's exactly right. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. These are our hiring goals, they say. They're very aggressive. But when everyone looks to you, you're calm. Why? Because you know you don't need a miracle. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed's hiring platform helps you easily schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful matching tools that find you matched candidates fast. On Indeed, over 85% of employers find quality candidates whose resumes match their job description the moment that they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. One of the things that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because the moment you post a job on Indeed, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes match your job description, and you can even invite them to apply right away. So start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash build wealth. Offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com dot com slash build wealth terms and conditions apply and now back to the show one question that i get a lot and i did some research before our interview here just to actually pull some sort of quantitative numbers is if you do take things to that higher more advanced more complicated level of actually making sure that certain etfs are in the most tax advantageous accounts and you just you're optimizing to that highest level that you possibly can to make things as tax efficient as possible what are you actually saving or what are you actually, is it worth your while? And there are several studies that have been published on this by reputable sources. And so I did want to bring three up here just so that you get some actual numbers that you can use to decide whether this higher level of optimization is something that you'd like to pursue. And I did want to give a big shout out to Ben Felix from PWL Capital. He's someone that I've interviewed on the summit multiple times at this point, a very knowledgeable individual when it comes to all of this. He's researched this quite heavily. And he's got a great YouTube video where he talks about this in more detail and explains this. And this is where he was actually able to find these three studies here that I'm going to be referencing. And I'm going to link out to his video in the show notes for this interview as well. So if you want to check out his video, definitely check it out. It's very good. But essentially, just to give you some numbers in terms of what you're saving. So the first paper that he mentioned was from Morningstar. It was a 2013 paper. And again, Morningstar, I would say reputable source of information. They clearly, they know their stuff. 23 basis points per year to after-tax returns was the benefit if you are optimizing things to sort of that higher level. And then in 2014, there was another paper from Dan Bortolotti and Justin Bender, who are also at PWO Capital. They did their own research and based on their own assumptions, because everybody, all the different sources, they there's a lot of assumptions that come into these things. There's financial models, things of that nature. So based on their assumptions, they got 30 basis points. And then Ben did he basically ran a model to determine this himself. He built and ran a model in 2017 
And he found that it was 23 basis points when he did that. And so basically to summarize, we got 23 basis points, 30 basis points, 23 basis points, not a giant amount for the amount of work required and the complexity and the hours you have to devote to understanding this. However, if you're dealing with a million dollar portfolio, even like half a million dollar portfolio, these numbers may actually pique your interest at this point, because again, it's as a percentage, right? Of whatever your portfolio is. The other important thing that I did want to point out when it comes to this is that this is not a guarantee, like we mentioned the 23 basis points. It's not like you are going to get this for sure, no matter what happens. And when Ben ran this, he mentioned that in 80% of the outcomes, the asset location piece actually added value. So it was successful. It did help, but it's not like 100% of the time you were able to save that money because the markets can fluctuate, different things perform differently. It's based on these different assumptions. Those assumptions don't always come into fruition. Things happen. And so it's not like a guaranteed play. So you may actually go through all of this work and it turns out you would have been just better off keeping it simple and just putting basically spreading all your assets out evenly across your accounts instead of saying, okay, this one's got to go here and this one's got to go there because that's the most tax optimum thing. So I did want to make a note of that, that this is not some sort of guaranteed sure thing that you can just count on 100% of the time. There is a bit of a risk to it as well. All right. So I hope that was that was helpful. So the benefit may actually be smaller than you think, depending on what happens in the markets. Now, the way that, and Brendan, I'd love to get your take on this, the way that I approach this is, yes, it may not always be the right solution, depending on what happens in the market, depending on the assumptions, but I don't know what the markets are going to do, certainly. like I don't know if US is going to grow more than Canada or vice versa versus international. There's a lot of unknowns in this, obviously. But one thing that is currently a known is that if I do nothing right now, present day, then I'm literally going to be paying more tax in terms of withholding tax because I'm not optimized. And so that's why me personally... I've chosen to actually do this asset location piece and do this optimization. And I mentioned before, I use passive to help me do this so that it's not painful. <laughs> but that's the route that I decided to take. I've also been investing for quite a while now. So it's not like I'm just starting off with a small portfolio. So it's worthwhile for me and my temperament and how much time I'm and my interest level and how much time I'm willing to dedicate to it. But again, it's not the answer for everyone. So I did want to give that sort of context and give you the actual numbers for everyone listening. But now, Brendan, switching things over to you, what are your thoughts on that? How do you do it? How do you think about this whole sort of process now that I've laid it out, how I do it? And that way people get two different perspectives, at least. Yeah, so I'm very pragmatic. I, I usually, and not just about investments, but about life in general, I usually don't do things until there's a very obvious need to do it. I've got a family, I've got a company, I've got a job, I've got all kinds of things. And it's hard to find time for everything. And so I really look at things and say, is this, is it worth doing. I did the sim- similar sort of calculation as you and decided that doing a tax-efficient portfolio was beneficial for me. I probably wouldn't be doing it if I wasn't running it through passive. It, it did take a little bit of time to research and figure out how to set it up. And once I set it up, it's been running nicely for about two years now, which is great. But I also don't do that with all of my portfolios. So I do that with my primary retirement portfolio because we have enough account types in there that we can actually do the tax-efficient stuff. But with the education plan I have for my children, that one is not set up to be tax efficient and lacking the proper accounts to be able to really do it, right? But there's probably tweaks I could make to make that portfolio a little more efficient, but it's also a much smaller dollar value than my retirement portfolio. So I've decided that in that case, it's not really worth the squeeze. I'm smiling as you're saying this because that's literally what I do as well for the RESP with my kids. The same idea. 
It's about in when I interview different financial planners, when I've done so on the summit and on the podcast, the one one thing that seems pretty much unanimous at this point is that they say you should view your RESP as its own sort of separate portfolio, right? That's not your retirement portfolio. That's meant for your kids' education. And so you want that to be its own portfolio that's properly diversified internationally. And, and like you said, you can't really if you view it that way, you can't really optimize it in the way you do to a, as a retirement portfolio for sure. So do you just hold uh, an asset allocation ETF in there or what did you decide to do with yours, with your RESP, for example, where it's not worth the squeeze, so to speak? I do something like a couch potato style of investing. So a shout out to Dan Bordelotti there as well. I actually mm-hmm. use one of his portfolios that he put together probably six or seven years ago. And he's changed the portfolio since. I think these days he's recommending asset allocation ETFs because they, they are quite good and they solve most of the needs with very little pain. But I never bothered changing the portfolio because to change to an asset allocation ETF, I would end up actually paying more and not necessarily doing much better. So I've already set it up to work the way that it does and I'm continuing with that. So I have a three ETF portfolio I use for the RESP. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Good, good to know. Yeah. For everybody listening, when you just buy the individual ETFs, like the underlying ones, instead of the asset allocation ETF, you are in cases able to save a little bit on fees. It's a relatively small amount, but it is something. And so it's kind of like you're getting paid. If you get asset allocation ETF, then you're paying slightly more than if you just held those ETFs individually, but you get the benefit of automatic rebalancing and just the ease of that and not have to think about it is definitely worth, I would say, the premium that you're paying in many cases. So yeah, so I, I hear you. But yeah, if you want to switch, now you're just like, hold on, I already have it like set up and it's all optimized and passive. Passive does it like pretty much automatically or makes it really easy to rebalance. So why would you go through the pain of switching over when now you're, so that means you're going to be paying more of an MER and, but you've already, to get this automation, but you already have this automation and passive. So what's the point? Is that pretty much how your logic when you were making that decision? That's right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sounds good. Yeah. So it, it seems like, you know, when we're applying these percentages for fully optimizing this whole asset location puzzle, if your portfolio, again, when I was researching this earlier, if your portfolio is still not very large, then it could save you tens of dollars a year, let's say. And in that case, okay, it's probably not worth it for you because you're going to be spending many hours researching this, learning it, figuring it out, trying to wrap your head around it. If, however, you've got a relatively large portfolio, then yeah, you could be saving several hundreds of dollars per year. And hey, maybe at that point it is worth your while, especially because those amounts will then compound, right? So it actually grows over time. And so you actually get more of a benefit that way. So it is definitely a very much, I would say, a situational thing for everybody. Now, Brendan, when would you say is it worth your while to actually pursue this level of optimization? How do you think about it? Is there a certain number where, okay, if your portfolio is X, then you should look into this? Maybe not, it's hard to say do it for sure, because there's people with giant portfolios that still don't do asset location because there's arguments against it as well. But when should it get on your radar? I want, maybe I want portfolio size or in what situation where you should at least explore this option and then decide whether it's for you or not. Sure. So let's start at the mutual fund side of things. So I said earlier that it doesn't really matter what you do when your account is small. When you're just getting started out, really the most important thing is getting yourself on an investing program so that your contributions are being made every month, you're paying yourself first, and you're starting to grow your nest egg. So in that case, it doesn't really matter where you start. If it's easiest for you to start with a mutual fund, and that's a path of least resistance that you know, you're going to do your contributions and you're going to start investing, that's fine. Because you don't, it doesn't really cost you that much to do. 
once you hit around $10,000, that's where the costs of having money in a mutual fund start becoming noticeable. So if you're paying, for example, a 2% MER, then on $10,000, that works out to $200 a year. So still not a crazy amount of money, but it's more than your Netflix subscription. It might be worth considering something else. If you're looking for something that's totally hands-off, then maybe the next step would be a robo-advisor. So you could do something like Wealthsimple, which most people are probably aware of. There's also there's many other competitors out there as well. Quest Wealth Portfolios is one of my, one of my favorite. It's another product by Questrade. And the fees that they charge is actually half what Wealthsimple charges for a similar product. So it's a fully managed thing. It, the experience of using a robo-advisor is similar to a mutual fund, and it's a substantially lower cost. So once you hit about $10,000, that's where you should consider, okay, do I want to pull this out of the mutual fund and put it into something else? Do I want to do a robo-advisor? Do I want to do an asset allocation ETF, like where an all-in-one ETF? That would be the point at which I started saying it's probably worth thinking about doing. But again, it doesn't really matter that much, especially if you're very early in your investing career. You can expect to be investing. Suppose you start investing around 25. You graduated university in your early 20s. You started working for a few years and around 25, that's where you start having enough money left over that you can start investing. So you've probably got a 40-year investing horizon there. And so even if it takes you an extra year or two to actually move your money over to a much more optimized portfolio, that's still a very small percentage of your investing career. And the amount of money that you have invested at the beginning is very small relative to what it will be later. So it makes almost no difference if you delay it six months or a year and take your time. The most important thing, in my opinion, is to make sure that you are investing regularly, you are making contributions, and that you don't overcomplicate your portfolio. Because if you do, then you're more likely to give up at some point and maybe go right back to a mutual fund rather than sticking with a slightly more hands-on approach that will save you massive amounts of money in the long run. Now, we talked about how I use passive and others use passive, people that have, let's say, mid-sized to larger portfolios and how that's useful. That's clearly evident because it helps you do these optimizations a lot easier, especially rebalancing. But for somebody that is, let's say, just getting started or has a relatively smart portfolio size where these asset allocation savings really just aren't significant enough to justify the work one must do for this level of optimization, what benefit is there to using a tool like Passive? The biggest benefit is helping you get started and keeping yourself, keeping yourself honest with like your contributions and how often you're putting your money in and are you actually like hitting your investing goals. Passive will connect to your brokerage account, will monitor for any sort of cash contributions that come in, will let you know when the cash is there and it's ready to be allocated. We give you a button to go and allocate it in a single click, which is great. And we give you some metrics so you can see exactly what your contributions are over time relative to your actual portfolio value. And we even have a contribution streak feature so we can show you, are you hitting, like, what's the, how many months have you gone and made consistent contributions for? And as long as you're doing that really well, particularly when you're getting started, you are absolutely set up for success in the long run. And it's easier for you to continue this and micro-optimizations in the future as long as you have the basics down, which is just start saving money and start investing it. But like I was saying before, around $10,000 is where it makes sense to start thinking about the product that you're investing in. Does a mutual fund make sense? Or is it a robo-advisor? Or is it an all-in-one ETF? Or... Are you doing, are you buying underlying ETFs and making a balanced portfolio? Once you get to around $50,000, that's where it's severe enough that the amount of money that you're paying for your mutual fund or robo-advisor is enough that it's noticeable, like, like really noticeable. It's gonna, it'll, if you're at a mutual fund, that would be costing you probably a couple thousand bucks a year. If you're at a robo-advisor, it's probably costing you several hundred at a $50,000 portfolio size. So 
that's when, that's in my mind, the trigger point for you should really step it up to the next level. If you get to $50,000, that means you've probably figured out how to make your contributions regularly and you've been doing really well at this for a few years. So that's when, okay, you've got the basics down. Now you can step up the complexity of your portfolio, save more money and move on. Yeah. And at that point, it's not all new to you anymore. You've, you have some experience under your belt. You've probably learned that this isn't actually as difficult or as intimidating as maybe you initially thought now that you've actually been doing it. And so it makes sense to step up to that next level and reap those savings for sure. Yeah. So I personally, I find that the reporting and the status updates that Passive provides really valuable. And then also having all of our family's accounts in Passive is, I just love it because I can just log into Passive and I see what we have in my wife's account, my account, or RESP, everything is all in one place. Whereas if I didn't have Passive, I'd have to log into each and every account, like log in with my wife's account, log in with my account. And that's just a hassle when you're trying to, one, rebalance, but even just see how your portfolio is doing. Has it grown much over the past year? Things of that nature. It's nice to be able to check on it easily without it really being such a hassle. So even if I was, I tell people all the time that ask me about this, even if I was starting over from scratch, didn't have my portfolio was zero, I'm just getting started. I would realistically still use passive. I'll probably just end up buying an asset allocation TF like ZEQT. Like I said, that's one that I use for my RESP. That's one that I would use for my retirement account at that point as well. And just still use passive sort of for those other components that you mentioned. And then once the portfolio is big enough, then I would think, okay, do I want to maybe buy the underlying ETFs of that now and maybe do some asset location to optimize even further? And maybe that's the answer. Or maybe just say, okay, you know what? Just keep buying the asset allocation ETF and use passive for the other the benefits that you mentioned. So, um, yeah, so yeah, thank you for creating it. Because yeah, Brendan, I don't know if I mentioned, he's actually one of the owners of, of passive. He's a founder of passive. Thank you for making it because it saved me dozens and dozens of hours at this point over the years. You're very welcome. Awesome. So this question we answered a little bit, we touched on, why not just go with the robo-advisor or get an asset allocation ETF or some mutual fund that tracks the index instead of buying individual ETFs and having them be automatically rebalanced in passive? So it's, it's the same sort of question around, is the juice worth the squeeze? And it becomes progressively more worth it the bigger your portfolio is. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that people should not use robo-advisors in any case, and they should never invest in mutual funds. I think there are better options, but it depends on your tolerance for thinking a little bit more about your investments. So a mutual fund and a robo-advisor are completely hands-off. You send them, you open an account with them, you send them some money, you get a contribution plan, and they take care of everything else. They ask you a few questions to determine your risk tolerance and so on, but it's not something that you really need to think about. And if you don't want to think about it, then don't. <laughs> you will pay slightly more in your fees, but or substantially more in the case of mutual funds. But that's a question for you to decide. Does that make sense? For people who enjoy investing, they're interested in it, they're, they like tweaking things. Self-directed investing is not only a lucrative way of doing it in terms of saving on fees and so on, but it's also a lot of fun. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. There are so many opinions on how to invest your money today, but it can be hard to find credible voices to rely on in the world of finance and investing. One resource that I turn to every week is the ETF Market Insights YouTube channel led by today's episode sponsor, BMO ETFs. Market Insights brings in industry experts and the weekly episodes cover the hottest themes like inflation, infrastructure, healthcare, and more. 
Tuning in helps me stay up to date on what's happening so I can be a smarter investor. And you can also submit your own ETF questions to be answered on the show. So do yourself a favor and subscribe on YouTube to ETF Market Insights or visit ETFMarketInsights.com so you can be notified when future episodes go live. And now back to the show. For those that want to hold multiple ETFs or even some specific stocks and still want this highest level of asset location optimization, why has doing this level of tax and fee optimization been difficult in the past? There's probably a few reasons for that. So the first is just the knowledge of how to set up a tax efficient portfolio. So in order to understand how to do it, you have to know a little bit around how international tax works, like how the United States has withholding taxes, what sort of assets they charge those withholding taxes on, the treaties between Canada and the US that allow some accounts to be exempt from those withholding taxes. There's a bunch of background information that you need in order to even appreciate that this is a possibility. So that's the first thing. And I think it's something that you probably won't hear about in most circles where people talk about investments because it is very technical and it's something that most people don't run into until their accounts are sufficiently large. First, like I said, it's the knowledge. The second part of it is how do you actually go about doing it? So if you understand how these things work and okay, in order to minimize my taxes on this particular asset, I need to hold it in an RRSP and it needs to be a US domiciled asset instead of a Canadian domiciled one. How do I actually run that? So you essentially need to build a system that allows you to figure out where your assets need to go and some way of keeping them balanced across the different accounts and the different underlying securities that are implementing. So it's a little bit complicated. You essentially need something like a program to help you calculate it. You could do all the math by pen and paper if you wanted to, but most people build Excel spreadsheets to help them figure out where the assets need to go, how many units of each stock to buy, what to do when you want to rebalance it, and so on. So building this spreadsheet is it's a little bit complex. You could also use one of the templates that are available out there, but it's, it doesn't make it that much less complex. You still need to do the legwork in figuring it out. And so I think that's the biggest thing is there is a substantial barrier to entry for doing any sort of tax efficient portfolio like this. Yeah. When I first started investing, passive didn't exist yet. And so I had to create all those spreadsheets and like students that have taken my course on the site, they know like I provide those spreadsheets and you can, it, it calculates and helps you rebalance and does all of that. And so those are still working and th- those are great, but I no longer actually use those myself. Like they're there for people that don't want to use passive and they work, but I just use passive now to actually help me do all the rebalancing because I don't need to manually enter the values anymore to figure out, okay, if I have 10 grand to invest, how much do I have to buy of each one to get back into balance? Passive pretty much does that automatically. They're telling you that. And they can even do the trades for you. And just, I think it was like two clicks for the to actually execute it. It was really neat. So that's personally what I do now. The spreadsheet's still good for those that don't want to use passive. But yeah, I'm always pushing you guys because I, I hate manual data entry. So you basically don't have to do manual data entry anymore, which makes me happy. I've switched over and I've never, never looked back. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was one of the biggest pain points I had when I was doing, I started with Dan Bordelotti's couch potato portfolio when I switched out of a mutual fund and that was before I founded passive. And I was doing it in a spreadsheet and it was a similar sort of thing. It was a much simpler portfolio. It didn't have to be tax efficient because the dollar amounts weren't high enough to make sense. But it was the same sort of thing where when I had one account, it wasn't too big of a deal. I would just log into my Quest Trade account once a month and check what my cash balance is and copy and paste a few prices into the Excel spreadsheet. And bada boom, it tells me what my optimal number of assets are to own. And then I go buy them. No problem. When I had three accounts. Now it's three times the amount of work because I got to do that for each one of the accounts and the copying and pasting is a bit of a pain. 
Yeah. When I got to six accounts, as my family was growing, like this yeah. is ridiculous. It, it is basically a hobby, right? And yeah, it's fun. It's fun when the hobby is like you're, you're still in the learning phase and you're setting it up, and it's not a burden. But it became a burden. It was just like I'm not really doing anything particularly complicated here. I'm just doing manual data entry, and yeah. if I make a mistake, I might end up making a mistake in my investments. And so there's this human element in there as well, where if I had a way of automatically pulling the price data in and the positions and just crunching the numbers, that would remove a lot of a lot of the tedious work and then also decrease the odds of making a mistake while doing it. And so that was where I started by building a simple little Python program to automate this stuff for me using Questrade's API. And then eventually that became a full-blown application that anybody can use, which is Python. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Because I think most families, they have pretty much seven accounts, right? You've got your taxable TFSA RSP, and then you have the same for your partner. So that's six. And then you've got your RESP if you have kids. So have fun. (laughs) I find as the amount, as the number of accounts grow, it stops being less fun, especially once it's not new to you anymore. You've been doing it for a few years, like in your case, right? It's no longer, there's no longer this novelty. There's no longer this challenge. It's just now it feels like a manual process and data entry and like administrative work. So yeah, and computer, and then like you said, yeah, the error thing is, is I would, I'm, I would like, triple check all my stuff, right? Just to make sure, because you don't want to make a mistake. You're dealing with thousands of dollars. And so it's nice. Obviously I still check the passive transactions before I click execute, but I no longer have to double check all my formulas in Excel just to make sure I didn't make a typo or misclick somewhere. And then now I'm going to be buying something I shouldn't be buying. But yeah. I, I hear you about that one for sure. For sure. So let's actually go through what investments to hold in each account for that maximum tax efficiency, both in terms of how to pay the least Canadian tax as well as foreign withholding tax and how to pay the lowest MER versus, let's say, letting a robo-advisor do it for you. So basically, I can go through how I do it in my own portfolio, but can you start us off in regards to how to pay the lowest MER as ultimately, like we mentioned already, that's the component that can literally save us the most amount of money, literally the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we've mentioned over our investment lifetime. So can you maybe address the whole MER thing? How do we make sure that we're not paying too much in regards to that? Good question. So the way that I would look at it is think about where your investments are held today and where you're thinking about putting them. If you have money in a mutual fund, you should be receiving statements from your bank or your mutual fund provider telling you what you've invested in and how much you're invested and what the fees are. I think it's actually relatively recent that they actually start putting the dollar amount in fees you pay on your statements, but that should be there, I think, since 2018. On your mutual fund statement, it'll say you have this much invested in this security. Here is the MER of the fund that you're invested in, or funds, plural, and here is the net amount of dollars that you paid in fees. And so it should be broken down for you on the statement. You might have to like dig through it, or maybe it's buried somewhere in the paperwork, but it should be in there. So that's the first thing. You can figure out what is the MER that you're paying on your mutual funds. And that's really the number you want to focus on because that is an industry standard for describing what the management fees are that you're paying for any sort of investment that you have. So next up, you want to think about what you want to do with your money instead. So if you decided you wanted to put it into a robo-advisor, you need to go to the road, like Google that robo-advisor and what their fees are. So if you were to say, put it in a well-simple portfolio, you would Google well simple fees and you would find, I think I Googled this earlier today, and the top result was simple charges 0.5% on the first $100,000 and 0.4% on amounts over that. And that is just, that's the fees that they take in exchange for managing your money for you. But that's not the whole picture as well. 
robo-advisors invest your assets into ETFs, and those ETFs have their own fees. So essentially what you want to do is look at the ETFs that they're suggesting to put you into, figure out what the average MER is that you're paying across those, and then add that to the robo-advisors fees. And so typically the, the ETFs they put you in have fees in the order of anywhere from five basis points to 25 basis points. I think it really depends on what robo-advisor and how they've constructed the portfolio. But it's typically in that range of five to 25 basis points. So then you add that to the fees they have, and then you have your net fees. And so that could be a total of, if it were with Simple, you'd probably be around 70 or 80 basis points somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, that, that, that seems like quite a bit. Because when I look with asset allocation ETFs, I mean, they, I think they, when they first came out, I could be wrong here. I think it was like 0.25. And now quite a few of them now, if you're just going for, you know, core holdings, right? For like total market type ETFs. I mean, we're talking 0.2%. I know that's what ZEQT is, for example. That's multiple times the price. So you're getting some extra, I guess, value by going with a road advisor because they have that nicer interface. You don't have to go versus like you having to go on the trading platform and actually buy them. And then I'm guessing they they help you with the asset allocation piece in terms of stocks versus bonds. I know there's like a quiz, even though you can do those online for free from good sources, but they help you with that part. So there is some value. You pay for the convenience. Yeah. So yeah, you are paying for the convenience. They'll give you something that's fully automated. They'll invest your money for you. You don't need to think about it. They'll even Mm -hmm. put you in a portfolio that they think is appropriate for you based on your answers to some risk type questions. Mm -hmm. So you're paying for the advice and for the convenience of having something that's completely automated. It is a substantial amount of money that you're paying for. Like you said, it's roughly triple what you pay for just a, an all-in-one ETF, which essentially does the same things that the robo-advisor does, but internally to that investing product. Yeah, because I remember when robo-advisors were, like, remember at one point, there were so many of them, right? They were just coming out left, right, and center. And if my memory serves, that was before asset allocations became so prevalent in Canada. And then... They came, associations ETFs came out. And then I imagine if you work at a robo advisor at that point, it would become a marketing challenge because here's this product that's way less expensive, that's doing what we're doing. How, why would someone buy our product? Now we've got to differ, differentiate ourselves from these asset allocations in some way. And so I, I think that's the new challenge of the robo advisors is how can we maximize that level of convenience? What else can we do? Because if we don't do enough, then people are just going to buy the asset allocation ETFs. Or some maybe will, won't because they just they'll go with the easiest sort of option. Or like you said, like if your portfolio is very small, maybe you're just like, it doesn't matter because those fees are such a small amount anyway, because I'm just getting started. I only have $1,000 in there. So why bother? Yeah, very interesting. I'm just really, I got thrown back a bit when you mentioned those fees. I didn't think they would be that much higher than an asset allocation ETF, considering how there's so many similarities between what they do and what an asset allocation ETF does. So that, that's one of the gotchas of robo-advisors is that they're usually not very explicit with you about the fees that you pay for the underlying assets. So they mm-hmm. charge you their management fee and they trumpet that as here's what you're paying. But really, you got to pay it for the stuff that they're investing you in yes. as well. There's multiple layers to the onion. Yeah. And I'm so glad you mentioned that. And I really want to make sure we don't gloss over that because I do remember seeing that in some other marketing material where the number front row center is this low amount. And so it's like, why would I go on the exchange and buy an asset allocation ETF when this robo-advisor is charging so little? It's not worth the hassle. It's almost the same price. It's not actually, it's like you said, that's what they're charging for that service, but there's still the ETFs they're buying for you and you're getting charged on those as well. And so you're not looking at the total cost. You're not comparing apples to apples. So thank you so much for bringing that up because I could see that being something that some, some investors could get easily. I guess if you're doing it very fast and you're not reading the fine print, it can be, I hesitate using the word trap to fall into, it can be a mistake that can be made quite easily 
by not actually comparing the full fee to the full fee. Yeah. So thank you. That's great. That's, That's really right. valuable. Yeah. So you definitely want to do the research, right? So look at what your robo-advisor is putting you in or look at what the mutual fund is that you're invested in and Google it. All those MERs are probably accessible. You can see what they are and you can figure out what your average is across all the investments you have. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Next week's episode is going to be a continuation of this discussion. And in that episode, we're going to specifically cover what investments are the most efficient in which accounts so that you can see what's involved and so that you can do these optimizations yourself if you choose to optimize your portfolio to that high of a degree. So definitely tune in next week for that. And even if you're just getting started and have already decided that you're going to go with something simple like an asset allocation ETF, which is totally fine, I encourage you to still listen to next week's episode since that way you'll know what the options available to you are and what's involved. And then you can better decide at what point, if ever, you want to actually do these investing optimizations to save even more on fees and taxes. Now, before we finish off for the week, I'd like to give a big thanks to two of our sponsors who, apart from my investing course, literally keep the entire Build Wealth Canada podcast and website free for you. Thanks for tuning in. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed's hiring platform helps you easily schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. And it streamlines hiring with powerful matching tools that find you matched candidates fast. On Indeed, over 85% of employers find quality candidates whose resume matches their job description the moment that they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. One of the things that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. It gets you one step closer to the hire by immediately matching you with quality candidates on the platform. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. And Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering eight times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to TalentNest 2019. So start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash build wealth. Offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. Do you know why asset allocation ETFs have become so popular? Asset allocation explains over 90% of the variation in a portfolio's quarterly returns. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to these ETFs. Today's sponsor, BMO ETFs, offers these innovative all-in-one solutions with the BMO All Equity ETF, ZEQT, BMO Growth ETF, ZGRO, BMO Balanced ETF, ZBAL, BMO Conservative ETF, ZCON, and more. BMO developed these to help provide investors with ETFs that offer broad diversification, and they're also low-cost and simple to use. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically back to your set asset allocation or mix of stocks and bonds. They offer a hands-free approach to investing that is built on disciplined weights to provide exposure to different geographies and sectors all in one solution. BMO actually offers eight asset allocation ETFs and you can learn more at BMOETFs.com. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 